This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I kept testing him the whole time. Like that's the level of doubt that I had with this guy. 48 hours later, I was left thinking, oh no, I was wrong about him. Master manipulator. You cannot imagine it. You're about to hear a story about when the cond became the conner, conner, and the con artist became the cond or something. Man, it's so hot. It's the hottest day in England's history, apparently, or at least it was forecast to be. Whether it is actually the hottest or second or third, it's stifling. And even turning off my fan for the time that it will take to do this reading for the intro is going to be very, very difficult. Um, when Sarah Ferris's sister became involved with a new man who seemed too good to be true, Sarah's spidey senses kicked in, and as her sister began being pressured into giving him hundreds of thousands of dollars, red flags were raised. Sarah tells her story of how they turned the tables and conned the con in her excellent podcast, yeah, Conning the Con. Available in all the normal podcast places. We'll also be talking about her other podcast, Clueless, which is K-L-O-O-G-H, uh, as in Clue, because that's his last name, the, the another, another con artist who was involved in Sarah's life. And Stop the Killing, another podcast, the third one, a series of interviews with the head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schveldt among other experts, and it's all about mass shootings. That one's a bit different. The first two podcasts are about uh, conning the cons and con artists. I'm just saying the word con a lot now, which in French means stupid. Um, And (laughs) the third, you can tell it's hot. It's got to my head. Uh, The third one being about mass shootings. And as Sarah explains, they try to keep politics out of it and delve into the psyche of a killer and what can be done to stop people shooting up schools so we have a lot to talk about today from con artists to the psychology of mass shootings check out all of sarah's podcasts and find her on Community podcast on instagram i'm currently recording this during the heat wave um, as i was saying so haven't been able to do so many bonus parts of late we have to turn off our fans and everything so i feel like uh, I have to let people get back to their lives after an hour beside hot computers. But I will bring those back as soon as things cool down a touch. But if you want to help support the podcast, go to patreon.com slash Gold. You'll also get ad-free episodes there. But now, you're on the edge of Con Artists with Sarah Ferris. Right. Yes, we're on the podcast. It's Sarah Ferris. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm doing very well, thank you, Andrew. That is good. I'm I'm happy to know that. We yeah, it's too hot, isn't it? You're from New Zealand, right? You've got an accent. Is that correct? Good job. Yeah. I'm guessing you had to look that up because you would have gone Australian or something else and uh, you don't want to do that to a Kiwi. But yeah, I'm Kiwi. You mustn't ever do that to Kiwis. And I think you might I either looked it up or you mentioned it. I can't even remember um <laughs> it is hot at the moment why don't you give us a, a brief background of sort of who who and what you are and what you do and stuff okay so i i guess uh i'm a bit of an accidental podcaster is what i am uh so i podcasting journalism not something i've ever done before but i fell into it because um a story came to me that just had to be told so the way i ended up in podcasting was my first podcast is called conning the con and it is the story of my sister's experience of dating a serial con man uh and when that happened it kind of spiraled out of control and we decided to hit record and we didn't at the time know what we were going to do with the with the audio that we'd recorded. But uh, as time went on, I was kind of like, well, I, I can't make a documentary. Well, you could, but I can't. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I'll give a podcast a whack because I was a massive true crime fan and listener before that. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got into podcasting. And then since Conning the Con came out, 
Um, I think I might need a little podcast intervention because I've got three more. So Connie the Con came out last April and then I connected with a woman on another app who is actually the former head of the FBI's active shooter program called Catherine Schweit. And I just kind of stalked her on Twitter a little bit and when to see if I could do an interview with her. And when we connected, we really sort of gelled and she said, oh, I'd love to do a podcast. Do you want to do one? I was like, hello, amazing. Yes, let's do it. So we've got a very uh, gently named podcast, Stop the Killing, clues in the title. Uh, <laughs> so um, it's about how to end mass shooting crisis globally. So we cover cases uh, that are... Um, both historical and then we also have a sort of bonus episode on a Tuesday that looks at recent developments uh, around the world. Uh, and it's all about prevention, essentially. So that was my second podcast. Uh, crazy story. A month after my sister discovered she was dating a con man, my parents-in-law then discovered that they were in one of the largest Ponzi schemes in New Zealand. So there was 81 victims and $16 million just gone west over the period of 40 years, which was crazy, uh, done by a financial fraudster whose name was Barry Clue. The only good thing that man ever did was give me the title of my podcast, which is Clueless, The Long Con. So that was my third podcast. And when the victims of, of Clue had actually heard Con in the Con, they came to me and asked if I would tell their story as well. So that's how that one came about. That just got released um, just, I think, in April. And and I've got another little sustainability podcast called Guilty Greeny, which is more about not true crime, maybe my crimes against the planet, which I do with the American like sustainability writer and influencer. So that's me. Yeah, that's you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? For I've only got one podcast and it's sort of enough to drive me <laughs> mad and, and have too much to do all the time. So it's pretty bonkers. All this. And I was looking through your stuff and I was thinking, OK, where should we start? And I think mm. this one involving your sister is pretty pretty mad isn't it and you know con artists and stuff so tell me what how did that all start she swiped right on the profile of somebody we thought was named andrew thompson yeah so my sister actually was divorced she had two young children and she was ready to meet someone else so she went on tinder as you do and bumble and all the other apps and she met a guy called andrew andrew thompson um, and they dated for six months. He seemed like really you know, like the perfect guy. In fact, we called him the unicorn because he was just so perfect that it just seemed too good to be true. And there were a, a few red flags along the way. But um, over that six-month period, basically, he groomed Emma and isolated her because we were asking questions about, you know, certain things that were coming up and, and she was getting put in the middle and it was just this amazing kind of ability that he had to manipulate and groom her, create a new reality, essentially. So uh, six months in, she transferred quite a wedge of money, $300,000 to his bank account for a property investment, uh, which, you know, appeared legit. The bank knew about it. The property agent knew about it. It all seemed legit. Uh, the day after that money hit his bank account was actually the day that she discovered his real identity. And uh, the way that goes down on the podcast is quite crazy. Emma had like a sliding doors moment at that time. She had to decide how she was going to get the money back because she was like, I'm not, this is not happening. I'm going to get that money back one way or the other. So she went to the police and the police said to her, you've got two options. You can either go through the legal system in the courts and it could drag out and he will have spent the money and it's gone. Or you can pretend that you're still going out with him and try and do whatever you can to get the money back. So she went with option B. And the police, that's an official police thing that they said. Well, unofficially, I would think they would say. But that was the advice that she got was basically that that if she wanted to get the money back, that would probably be seen as a civil uh, instance for a long time before the criminality could be unfolded. And, and that was her best option. So... The kicker was he didn't realise that she'd discovered his real identity at this stage. So she still had a cover, essentially. Um, 
it's almost like, you know, a duck and or as a swan, I don't even know what it is, with the legs are going underneath the water all the time, working away, working away, and it looks calm on the surface. That's what Emma was like. So she was working away um, at how she was going to get this money back. And kind of we decided together at that stage, the best way was to tell him that, his, that her family had found out about her giving the money and that they were like, hey, this is a bit dodge. Let's just you know, keep money out of the relationship. So she texted him and said, hey, can we, you know, I'm not comfortable about the money. Can I have the money back? Uh, and he was like, oh, no, sorry. You know, it's whatever. I won't give too much away, but in episode four of the podcast, um, it gets really dramatic. And uh, Emma basically should win, win an Oscar for how she gets quite a chunk of the money back at that stage. However, there's still $100,000 in the wind at after that. So she's still got to keep him on the hook. Now at that stage, we hit record and we start recording everything that's coming in. So I should preface that by saying that was the last time she ever saw him or spoke to him verbally. Everything else he did by email and text. And you've got to kind of wonder why was he still invested. But the key to it was Emma was the central point of a whole lot of other cons that he had going on. So if Emma's con blew up, then it would take down this world, this web that he'd created of other lies. And he couldn't afford for that to happen. So um, it was in his best, best interest to keep it going with Emma. So he was doing that via text and via email. Um, and yeah, it, it, it got kind of crazy. So yeah, the story just kind of ramped up from there and uh, he even fled the country at one stage. But one of my favourite parts of the story is that to explain away why he was the way he was and why he couldn't give her the money back, he decided to write his autobiography, which is called The Tonka Trilogy. He's only written the first one, which is gutting for all of us because it is comedy genius. Because his first name is, his real name is, is Andrew Tonks, right? That's what we, you came to find out. That's why it's the Tonka trilogy. Correct. Yes, exactly. So thanks to some amazing digging from Emma's friends who actually did some deep diving. They discovered that his real name was Andrew Tonks and that he had just been released from prison only a few, I think maybe 18 months max beforehand, come straight out of prison after a fraud um, conviction and gone straight into the next load of frauds. So that was that was where it was, yeah. So he was sending her these um, chapters one by one, and we were waiting with bated breath to get these chapters, and Emma would like, as soon as they hit her email box, she would we'd zoom each other and uh, we'd get straight on the line and record our live reactions. It was kind of like con artist's goggle box. So live reactions to these crazy chapters that were coming through. Wait, so just to, just to clarify, this was, sorry, uh, just, it, just that. So these were his, he was releasing these things about how he'd been a con man or whatever and didn't realise your sister would have, would be able to get access to them. No, sorry, let me clarify. So he knew that Emma was getting suspicious about him. So what he did is he created this whole web of lies about why he um, hadn't told the truth in some aspects uh, and why, you know, why he couldn't give the money away to give the money back to her. Um, basically, it was just a delay tactic. It was a delay tactic to try and win her back. And it was full of things like, I was a spy for the government. I mean, chapter nine's title is Becoming a Spy, WTF, I wanted to be a businessman. So, you know, it's just kind of like the ramblings of this delusional con man. And the really scary thing is he's literally sitting at home typing this out um, just to keep the con going not knowing that it's already up. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a crazy story. And in the podcast, we have a psychologist, Dr. Sophie Muir, that runs through the whole podcast to kind of highlight the red flags, make people aware of the signs, but also to kind of unpick uh, how that can happen, because that's kind of where I came from with the podcast in the first place. Like, how could my intelligent you know, sister, she's got her own business, she's got, you know, her head screwed on correctly, <laughs> uh, would be the last person I would have expected to fall for a con man. 
So it was unpacking how that happened and also unpacking it for her because she couldn't understand how she'd gotten to that position either. Uh, so, yeah, that's conning the con, I guess, in a nutshell. I don't want to give all the story away, but, it, it yeah, it did really well. It came um, runner-up in the International Women's Podcast Awards last year, oh, which was pretty cool, fantastic. in the cliffhanger drama section. Congratulations. So I want to know, I mean, I want to get you to reveal how she your sister got some of the money back through her acting uh, and how much you can reveal. Because obviously I know you, the concern is that people won't then go and check out your podcast because they've got all the juicy bits. But I think I think they'll still go. Oh, look, honestly, that's episode four when that happens. And there's 14 episodes in the whole series. So even when she gets that money back, it just keeps spiraling out of control. Um, so what she does is the, the option that she has is to get the money back. She rings the bank. The bank puts it on hold, which is amazing that they did that. And um, they said the only way that you can get that money transferred out of his account back to your account is if he physically comes in with you and you both sign the papers and he has to physically be there with his ID to sign it back to you. She's like, how the heck am I going to get him to do that? Like, you know. But somehow she did. Um, she played the card of, listen, you know, let's keep the relationship, the money out of the relationship. It's too soon. My family's on to me. They're really not happy. They're going to start digging around. And it just kind of, whatever happened in his mind, he bought it and he went into the bank that day. And there was two moments which she said when she was in the bank that she actually saw his mask slip for the first time. Um, and... You know, the psychologists will tell you on the podcast that they basically, these psychopaths have two emotions that they oscillate between, and it's anger and charm. And up until that point in the bank, Emma had only ever seen the charm. Because he was getting pushed, the anger came out, and he actually made threats um, against my family um, and against her children. So it got pretty scary in there. But still signed the paper. Still signed the paper because he couldn't risk the cons blowing up. So he knew that he could. In his mind, he's thinking, I'll circle back to that money. And and at that stage, she'd transferred, you know, 300000 over the period of, of, like, that day, the day before. There was only 200 left in the bank account. So he'd already moved it by that stage. So she could see... You know, there was still a hundred thousand she had to play for, and he knew he had two hundred thousand left to play for. Essentially, it's so great, and I think people listen. I should say, like one of the themes of this podcast is is you know cults and ideologies and things. And I think you spoke about your sister being very intelligent and, and stuff. So it's it's always just amazing how super intelligent people uh, get drawn into these things. And all of us sit at home going, "Well, it wouldn't happen to me." And it's just it's if you think that then you are the person that I think it would happen to. It, w it would maybe wouldn't happen to people going, God, that could happen to me. It might not be in the form of someone you're dating or you met on an app who's asking for money. It might be something else, some other ideology you fall for or whatever. But I think you've got to be, you know, so I, I totally understand, you know, what happened with your sister. And, and so you spoke of unicorn and also red flag. So I was sort of seeing these in my mind as two opposing things. And I suppose there's some crossover. Some of the unicorn stuff probably was red flaggy. What kind of stuff was the unicorn stuff to start with? What was he doing that, you know, what, what could make someone into a unicorn of a man in the first few dates? Mm, well, he just was the top of his game for everything. So he was a self-made millionaire. He had uh, been a restaurateur. He had a trucking company. He had a property company that he was interested in. And he was also like, uh, he used to be a professional AFL player, which is Australian Football League. If you don't know, <laughs> you don't need to know. And was these all lies? These, uh, well, funnily enough, as the podcast goes through, people start coming out of the woodwork and some of them were actually based on facts. Uh, so he had been a restaurateur, but that was one of his previous cons. Um, so, <laughs> and ironically, the trucking company story, he said that he'd been bought over. He was Australian, this guy, Andrew. He'd been bought over by this New Zealand company to be a consultant on the board and he was going to be made a, you know, director or something on that. But at the moment, he was just going through the process of guiding them because he's got so much trucking experience because he had a trucking company in, in Australia. Turns out he was actually the dispatch guy at the trucking company in real life. So 
It's a little bit of truth in there. He sold a truck that wasn't his to get the restaurant. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So as the podcast came out, we started getting people contacting us and saying, oh, my God, I know Andrew Tonks. This is what happened to him. Or I was his ex-girlfriend. He conned me, blah, blah, blah. So one of the stories was this restaurant story that he had purchased in Tasmania. And um, the the guy that had had uh, been through that con with him, part of the con was that it was based on the lie that he'd you know, had this truck to sell. So, yeah, I mean, everything was kind of based in grains of truth truth, and you just kind of pull a thread and it would just unravel. Everything would unravel, but everything was still kind of linked together. It's crazy. How he kept the story straight. Is AFL on Aussie rules? Is that what that, and was he an, was he an Aussie rules player? No, he was not. I think he would have liked to have been an Aussie rule player, but well, that's one of the other unicorn sort of things about him was that, he tried to have this, like, image that he was amazing and perfect, but his body and fe- facial features didn't match what he was, like, saying. So, you know, well, in his mind, it didn't. So his narrative was that this is the way I look because I've just had a hip operation and um, I'm going to get back into fighting fit stage. Normally, I'm a national, I was a national wakeboarder champion and AFL, so I'm normally super fit. So, hey, you know, I didn't even want to come on the first date because this is not what normally I look like. And, you know, Emma wasn't superficial. It wasn't anything to do with that. But it was just the fact that he was making that narrative in his mind. He always had to be better than what he was. Was he out of shape? Uh I don't mean he wasn't like an Iron Man or anything like that, but he was, yeah, he was a bit overweight, I guess. I mean, for for, for what he was projecting, which was this, you know, AFL professional athlete, then yeah, he probably wouldn't fit the mould of an athlete, let's just say. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because you always think, like, if I was going to lie to people, and I wouldn't lie to people, not because I'm morally above it, but because I'd be worried about being caught out. So that's why I try not to lie to people, because they'll catch me. But I would think if I was going to do it, I'd try a really subtle one. But whenever you hear stories about con artists and stuff, it's almost like they blow you away with, like, outrageous lies that are so over the top. And I think our natural position, most of us, is to believe someone. And it's, again, it's easy when we hear a story like this to just be like, oh, I wouldn't fall for that. But when you're face-to-face with someone, someone another human being and looking into their eyes and they seem really nice and they're taking care of you and they're just like oh yeah i was a professional footballer whatever and you it's just like why would they lie so the more egregious and ridiculous the lies are the more we believe them in a sense i guess that's what you should do is over the top lie well, they well. There's two things. I mean, and the psychologists would say that that's part of their personality disorder. Really, as a psychopath, is that you are grandiose. Um, and I guess the other thing to point out is. I mean, I called him Dirty Andrew to his face because before I'd met him, I was very like, you sound too good to be true, Andrew. The very first red flag was literally the first time Emma told me about him. She said his name and I, I'm dating this, I've met this guy on Tinder and I went, oh, what's his name? Straight onto Google. She goes, ah, ah, ah. Sarah, you can't Google him. He's had his identity wiped off the internet and social media because somebody stole his identity. And I just went, Emma, there's a fucking massive red flag <laughs> right there. Yeah. Um, and she was like, yeah, but, you know, you know, I'm just going to see where it goes. And he had this story why it was real and blah, blah, blah. So I was having these red flags from the outside looking in. And like you are doing, and probably a lot of the listeners, when they hear it, they're like going, well, there's no way you would fall for that. That was me. That was me, right? I was going into the situation going, this is something's off here. I met him once and I had so many kind of doubts and red flags about him, as did the whole family, that we met him and I we were meeting on a beach. It was summer in New Zealand. And I'd put out four chairs, three like a panel and then one facing. And he rocks up and I was like, Andrew, that's yours. That hot seat is yours. Sit down. Let's have a chat. Um, and, you know, he was just like really kind of affable and blah, blah, blah. I kept testing him the whole time like, What's your middle name? Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's the level of doubt that I had with this guy, right? 48 hours later, I was left thinking, oh, no, I was wrong about him. He's just the salt of the earth, entrepreneurial, really loves Emma, you know, genuine kind of guy. That was going into it with all of those red flags because the ability for him to build trust uh, and groom, master manipulator. So you, if you haven't experienced it, you cannot imagine it. Has it changed how you trust people that you meet now? I mean, statistically, I mean, if you think about thousands of people listening to this, one of them's probably being conned by someone right now and, and doesn't realise it, right? Oh, 100%. Um, yes. But I mean, I think probably... I would have thought that this was a bit more of an anomaly until the month later when I discovered that my parents-in-law had been being conned for 40 years by their financial advisor. So <laughs> then I was kind of like, yeah, no, trust no one. Oh, my God. It's crazy. I want to hear more because we're going to get onto that one, but I want to hear more more red flags and things. I guess suppose things that people can look at, the clinical psychologist you had on, things that you know they've said we could look out for if, if there are people in our lives who are malignant forces yeah well okay so there's a couple of really think things that really stuck with me from what dr sophie muir said there was one thing that um was fascinating and that was that these psychopaths have what's called a predatory memory which is a freaking terrifying term in itself and in studies and i'm just paraphrasing this is this is psycho uh, psychology for dummies I'm about to splurt for you now as I remember what she said but it was something along the lines of they'd done a study and uh, the people with psychopathic traits that were high on the psychopathic traits scale they would always remember the details of the vulnerable female or the vulnerable character in a story more than somebody without psychopathic traits so they've just got this whole different way that they approach life anyway they're wired differently and then the other thing was the um, psychological mask. So what they do is they reflect back to you exactly what you're looking for. So they will sort of mirror to you what you're looking for. And that's why often 
the unicorn is a red flag because if somebody's so perfect, it's ve- you know it's very unlikely that that somebody could be everything that you want exactly. You know what I mean? Like off the blueprint of if you wrote down this is the perfect partner, this is the guy that turns up. What are the chances? So that was quite an interesting one. I thought that you know you know why that that one really interests interests me. It's just because. Um, the the what we've what we've learned to understand about and, and neither of us are clinical whatevers but what we've been led to understand about psychopaths and people with antisocial personality disorders that they lack empathy or whatever it might be and i don't know if it's probably people screaming at their whatever they're listening to this on now going that's not how it is and fine i'm sorry if that's the case um <laughs> but i Feel free to write into Andrew with your complaints. <laughs> yeah, please tell me how much you have. I've made a wrong diagnosis. Um, but presumably you've got to have a level of empathy to be able to sort of put yourself in the position of the other person and be able to reflect back to what they're looking for. What a great thing that you've just picked up on because that was the other freaking horrible thing that she told us, the psychologist, that people with psychopathic traits are born with an empathy switch, but its default setting is off. <laughs> Right. So you and I, well, I'm assuming you, um, (laughs) seems like you are, you've got your empathy switch permanently put to on Mm. normally. Well, I'm speaking for myself now, Andrew. Um, (laughs) That's the way that we're wired. But somebody who's psychopathic or is on the on the psychopathic sort of uh, spectrum, they will have to be told to turn it on. Right. So they'll have to be kind of like, you should be feeling happiness now you know you should be feeling whatever you know empathy essentially you should be feeling empathy when somebody uh, for example your grandfather dies they might need to be told that this is a moment when they need to be feeling sadness or they'll take up that cue from the society around them and realize that that's what needs to be displayed by them that's really me just uh, filling in the gaps there. But <laughs> that's the kind of idea is that their empathy switch is set to, de- to off. The, I suppose there's also what you've described as the difference between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. The cognitive empathy being uh, able to understand why you should be sad and, and what's going on with the sadness and that kind of thing. And the emotional empathy being actually being able to feel that inside. And maybe they, they, can't, they don't feel it, but they, they are cognitively aware of it. You you might be able to display empathy because that's going to get you what you want. You might not be actually, you, you might learn that to get what you want out of somebody, you need to display this kind of empathetic, oh, for example, to my sister, oh, you know, I love children, um, I, you know, really would love to have a large family or what have you. Uh, because he can see that that's going to get him closer to his goal. Everything's about the utility that they can find in someone. It's really interesting empathy. I asked um, Peter Bogosian, who was on, I guess it was, it would probably come out the week before this or a few days before this one, um, what he, because he's a philosophy professor, if he thinks empathy exists, because I, I don't know, I, and I, I'm going off tangent a bit here, but you know, I look at like the, both both sides of the abortion debate say that the other doesn't have empathy. So the pro-lifers say that, oh, they don't, you know, pro-choices don't have empathy for the fetus. Pro-choices say, oh, you, you know, you don't have empathy for the child actually growing up or the mother carrying the baby. Uh, how can you have no empathy? And he said he thinks empathy exists within your own particular tribe. So if you sort of tell yourself, I am a pro-choicer, you can feel empathy for other pro-choices and things. If you are a pro-lifer, you can feel empathy for them. But it's sort of a limited thing. And it's weird. So it's almost like that switching off and on that you're talking about. We all have to an extent. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Under his eye, as I like to say, with the old Roe versus Wade. Oh yeah, uh, Handmaid's Tale. I love that. I like the book. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> the book was good, and then and I thought the series got quite slow for a second after it went beyond the book material. Yeah, yeah, I haven't finished Tor- torture porn. As well, well, I mean, I can just watch the news yeah, now, can't yeah, I? You can. So the- <laughs> it's. I'm just. I'm being careful. I'm being careful not to say anything either way, so that anyone doesn't stop listening to this. But I am, I am pro-choice. So, so, but if you're pro-life, I yeah, feel free to edit that out. <laughs> I'll leave it in. But pro-lifers, just still listen to this, please, because um, I want more listeners. So there you go. What? Tell me what's happening with um, with Andrew now. What's what's the latest going on? 
Oh, funny you should say that. So we thought, you know, he was in New Zealand last we heard because he couldn't leave because he still had to pay reparations after he... So he he ended up going to jail, spoiler alert. Uh, how he gets there is quite exciting. Um, and he'd only served, I think, maybe 18 months. I can't even remember how much he got in the end. It was pitiful for what he, he'd done. Um, and then last we heard... He was back in Tasmania, his hometown, um, and back in front of the courts uh, on a previous fraud charge that, yeah, a, a historical one that actually we covered in the in the podcast. So we're just watching with eagle eyes to see how that's going to unfold because we're only kind of getting bits and bobs out of that at the moment. The Tasmanian Tonks Underground is, is feeding us information. I'm just looking at looking him up now because i didn't look at a photo of him but it's only now i thought and i, I imagine listeners also going oh, i wonder what he looks like i don't know why that is because is he the one because there's lots, there's lots of different like. pictures i've put in andrew tonks he's got sort of a goatee beard thing yeah never trust a man with a goatee is my new I rule think, i think like i think i'd believe him i don't know why i just think oh i'd believe everything he said yeah he looked like he doesn't look like he's got devil's no, horns does he goatee, which is a bit a bit devilly but <laughs> apart from that that yeah oh, that. Man. Hey, you exactly. said that it was exciting how he went to prison you can't say that and not tell us that <laughs> well okay so he fled the country right um and at that stage emma was working with the police to to get border alerts out so he couldn't flee the country because we were like he's a flight risk surely uh and as it, as that's happening, we're kind of ripping down all these other cons behind his back. So his world is literally crumbling and we are orchestrating it. I'm orchestrating it from here. Emma's orchestrating it from New Zealand. It was just um, a like, crazy time. Uh, and then the police managed to get a border alert out so that if he came back into the country, he would be arrested on landing. But why would he come back? There was no reason for him to come back. He'd escaped. So what we did was we kind of crafted this story about, um, you know, the relationship is more important to me than money. That's what Emma crafted and we kind of were emailing him this sort of stuff. I really need you to come back because I know that you're away right now, but I would love for you to come back and let's try again. And then maybe we can look at doing the investment down the track. Now, it was a lot more long-winded and a lot more back and forward. And we just thought that's not going to go anywhere. It was like almost like a last shot in the sky, um, shoot your shot kind of thing. Uh, and yeah, unbelievably, we got, a, we got a text. I got a text at 2 a.m. I sat bolt upright in bed. And it was the the policeman saying, he's on the plane. He's on the plane and he's coming in. We're going to be waiting. So, oh. yeah, that was an amazing moment. What a feeling. The police is just texting your private yeah. number at 2 a.m. It was. Mm. Well, no, so they were texting Emma. Emma's texting me. I'm up. My husband's asleep beside me because it's, you know, New Zealand time versus UK time. I'm based in UK. So literally night was day. I was living New Zealand time in the UK for about a month and a half. And uh, yeah, so I'm sitting bolt upright in bed, just watching the dot, dot, dot on the phone as she's typing um, and like just giving me one line pieces. He's on the plane. I'm like, dot, dot, dot. What's, what's happening? What's happening? What's oh. happening? Um, and then just screaming out loud when the, it came through. And then I had to wait. I think we had to wait for the plane to land, which was about two hours later. I was just Emma and I were just texting back and forward for the next two hours. Um, I don't, don't think I got a wink of sleep. It was just so intense because we were like, maybe it's not him. You know, could this could all be bollocks. Can they really arrest him? So, yeah, it was pretty, pretty exciting. But there's a lot more building up to it to get him there. Did, did this whole thing bring you closer with your sister? Were you already very close? Because it sounds like apart from you sound quite fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're from a big family. So Emma's my youngest sister. I'm one of six. And, you know, there's about eight years between us. And we've always been really close. Uh, she looks like me or used to um, until age, like, really ran away with me and kept her nice and young little rat. Little rat. Um, but, yeah, we people say that we look like twins. So, yeah, we, we've just always been really, really close. And this was just such an intense experience to go through together. And, um yeah, I mean, I'm just really proud of the way that she's come out of it. Did she get all of her money back then? And, and have other people got 
their money back. No, she didn't get all her money back. Uh, she, I think there's about maybe a hundred thousand ish still in the wind. Um, and other people lost money as well. Some people made money on the deal, um, which you can hear in the podcast, uh, which I don't feel great about. But, um, you know, they have to live with that. Well, who made money apart from him? Well, one of the, the deals that he was doing, one of the businesses was a alcohol company that he was buying into. He was buy- purchasing it, um, and which is one of the reasons that he seemed legitimate, because he became a director of that alcohol company while Emma was dating him. Um, and it, his name went on to the New Zealand uh, company's house, essentially. So you could see that he was registered as a director on this company. Um, but to do that, he'd actually paid 25000 of Emma's money to buy his directorship into that business. Um, and that money never came back to Emma, even even after the fact that Emma told out, outed Andrew to, to the director the person was like, well, I can't give you the money back. My business is failing. So they spent it, which, I mean, yeah, it, it, I don't, it doesn't sit great with me. No, absolutely not. It's a, it's a, it's a strange thing because we have a society that has so many uh, sort of, uh, what would you you know, safety belts or, or whatever. Uh, but if you're defrauded and the person then doesn't have the money to pay you back in their bank account, that's it just got I, I and i'm not suggesting i know a better way it's just you know i don't know if you know does should the government be and then, and then that would open it up to all sorts of double frauds where it's like oh it doesn't matter the government will just pay us back anyway like i don't know what should be done but it's a it's a complicated one i know well it's an interesting one and it's one that we, if we are going to talk about clueless it's definitely one there because this guy was a registered uh, financial advisor so i think that's probably more where the government has to hold its hands up and there's ways that it can happen. Let's get on to Clueless then. Let's do Clueless. So Clueless about Barry Clue, the financial advisor from New Zealand. What's his deal? So Clue as in K-L-O-O-G-H, if you're Googling it, don't be looking for Clue like Cluedo. Um, yeah, so he was an authorised by the government financial advisor. And my parents-in-law met him Back in the 70s, like literally 40 years ago, they met him. And what he did is he essentially groomed an entire town uh, and created this Ponzi scheme. And, you know, the stories of the victims, people all say, oh, you know, financial fraud. These are people that could actually afford to lose the money. The stories are not like that. This is not a Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme where you've got to have 400 million to get in the game. These are people that were saving for their retirement as they was told to do by the government, to spread their bets and to do it through an authorised financial advisor so that they could put away, for, you know, sacrifice now so that they would have something in the future. So, uh, yeah, the stories are pretty horrific. He ended up selling also insurance policies, but because he was going for so long, he managed to wait for those insurance policies to mature and then he would rape the people of that money as well. Uh, and there's a really, really sad story in there about a, a life insurance policy that he had sold to a man that ended up having terminal cancer. Um, and he sat with that man holding the man's hand, crying, saying, do not worry. When you go, I've invested all the money from your insurance policy and I will make sure that your wife and eight children, stepchildren, foster children, will be taken care of. Unbelievably, he dies. And then three days later, Barry Clue is investigated by the Serious Fraud Office. And that woman is left with nothing. So she's buried her husband and lost all her money in the space of a week. And that 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 would have happened regardless of whether they had started being investigated then. he You, th- you think he was lying when he was crying and saying all this stuff? Well, interesting you say that. So on the podcast... You know, I like to unpick these things. So I have um, on this one a forensic psychiatrist who you may have met before, I'm not sure, Dr. Shaham Das, who's a forensic psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he was on this morning today. 
He was on this morning today. He really was. Um, and yes, yeah, so Shahom is on it right through. Uh, we, we I weave in Shahom's insight into you know the psychopathic traits of a fraudster that is a financial fraudster and somebody that can do it for the space of forty years to keep up this con for forty years, like and be part of the community. Um, the layers in it are really really heartbreaking, um, and yeah. So, yeah, I can't, I, it's just the stories. I have to tell you one other story that really sticks with me. There is a 70-year-old man who had put all his money away, worked his whole life into his retirement fund, his superannuation fund, as we call it in New Zealand. Um, and he retired for all of 18 months. He gets cancer. Barry Clue then gets arrested all of his money is gone. So he's now with stage four cancer going through chemotherapy, having to work full time at the age of 70 because he's got no money left to support his wife when he dies, which, you know, I mean, yeah. So when I say these are, you know, I think that's the, the perception is that financial fraudsters, people have money to burn. It's, you know, they've, they've done something naive. They've They've put money where they shouldn't have. They haven't been sensible. This is not the story here. It's a lot more layered. So what was he... Because I, I don't know much about finances and things, and that, that's not an invitation for people who, to come and start selling me stuff now because uh, I'm a pigeon. <laughs> I got um, you a number. <laughs> you know what? Like, I actually walked into Halfords, which is a, a, you know, for people who don't know, it's a car, motor, whatever, to, to get my MOT. And I don't know why, but when I walked in, I started, I always feel this thing of like, I need my dad with me. I'm 33, but I just sort of walked in and I went... <laughs> Um, hi, mate. I don't really know much about cars or anything like that. And then I started asking him prices and things. And I, I, even as I was then listening, I thought, Fool. Right, I thought I've got to go and do this again somewhere, like without that first line somewhere else now. But yes. I then had to be polite and listen to him give me these extortionate figures. Uh, but, but that's just the kind of plonkerish thing that I do. Um, <laughs> but I was just thinking about that because it was a few days ago. So, so I don't know much about this stuff. Um, so he was what? So insurance policies and then just never paying them out. Was that what was happening? No, so the insurance policies is a whole different um, saga. And it, look, it's quite, it's complicated if I tell you now, but in the podcast, we break it down. I break it down so it's much more palatable. But um, essentially, the main part of his Ponzi scheme was he was investing in the share market, what were essentially blue chip products, uh, blue chip shares. He wasn't. He had managed to find a loophole in the system where it looked to all and sundry, even accountants, that he was investing this money. But at, when it came around to brass tax, he was literally writing onto an Excel spreadsheet uh, and creating this whole fake world. So there is a lot of, um, yeah, who is responsible in this case? Is it the government? Is it the platform that actually allowed him to create this mask? that he managed to find a loophole in a system that was, you know, a legal system. So it's, I feel like it's their fault and they should now have to pay back all the people who lost money. I know, but, well, we'll see how that unfolds. But that's not the case at the minute. Mm. Is that ongoing? Uh, well, he's gone to jail um, and I think the 81 victims are hoping that there might be some kind of you know, somebody's going to put their hand up and go, God, this was completely wrong and hands up, it was the government. We should have, when we say authorised, we mean authorised, you know, that's on us. But at the moment, that's not happening. Oh, God. What about that Prime Minister woman? Has she said anything? <laughs> Jacinda, let's all text Jacinda. If you're listening right now, everybody send a tweet to Jacinda Ardern and tell her to sort out the victims of Barry Clue. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. No. Just she doesn't give a shit. <laughs> I know. She doesn't seem to. She's always she like holier right than now. thou. And then she doesn't care about... I don't know much about her politics. I'm not having a go at her. But she, she's all, she's often quite um, virtuous. So you'd think this would be something she'd get right behind. Well, let's make it happen. Let's make it happen, people. Yeah, I would like people to... What does Ponzi scheme mean? Is it what you just said? Is a Ponzi scheme just like these people fiddling in the books? No, so like, well, the word... 
Ponzi has actually originated from uh, an actual con man called Charles Ponzi, who was around in the 1920s. And he wasn't like the first person to come up with it, but it ended up being named after him. So a Ponzi scheme is essentially where you, uh, it's like a hamster wheel. So money comes in like a pyramid kind of as well. So you might put in the first hundred thousand and then you'll keep recruiting more people to come in and then the next person will put in a hundred thousand, but then you might want 50 out. So to pay the 50 out, it just keeps going. You've got to keep feeding this hamster wheel to keep it going and keep it going. So you need always need more people to come in because you will have to be paying out at the same time. So that's the whole idea. And it just creates these fake, re this fake returns. Um, and at some stage, it'll come crashing down. Oh, man. I feel so sorry for those people. And, and you've also had people getting into I just saw in the reviews and stuff, people saying like, oh, I knew Barry at school. And, you know, you've had people telling you that, you know, what, what kind of stories have you heard from people getting in touch? Oh, Oh, just, I mean, the really strange thing is when we started, even with Connie the Con, the amount of people that have got a con story, but don't tell it because the reason that we wanted to do the both those ones, both Connie the Con and Clueless, the reason we wanted to do them was to strip back that shame. Uh, and, you know, often the shame lies with the victim in a con artist scenario because they managed to just kind of, you know, put all that guilt on you. There's that misconception that somebody's naive or gullible, which isn't the case. So that's why we did it is to try and strip back that. And we had a lot of people coming to us with their own stories saying, thank you for, you know, exposing uh, con artists because, you know, I, I can't put my head above the parapet, but thank you for doing that. Um, and yeah, so, so many stories. I can't even put my finger on one in particular, just, just so many. Yeah, I mean, we've had on this podcast, I don't know if you know of Mary Thompson, who wrote The Bigamist. No. Or you'll like that. Writing one. that down. Yeah, listen to that yeah, episode okay. or, or read the book if you're interested in that stuff. But I mean, because she, she married a man who um, was also married to like, I think they know of like seven other people, but it could have been dozens or hundreds of other people he was married to at the same time. God. That's quite not. That's quite often the case, isn't it? And then the one that always surprises me that they get away with is the spy story, and that's how they get away with these long yes. distance kind of. I can't tell you where I'm going. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. I, I, she's not from Scotland, is she? Yeah. I may have heard her on, um, I think, a John Ronson uh, podcast, perhaps. Mm. Um, may, or maybe it was this podcast. Maybe because John was on this, wasn't he? It, so maybe or, it's all coming together it's all coming together it's all coming together uh but yeah so that is quite a common a common lie that they use that they're um they're spies because they've got to make it a believable excuse for why they're away for so long and why they can't tell you where they are of course i'm a spy you know first rule of being a spy <laughs> yeah exactly first rule of being a spy don't tell anyone you're a bloody spy Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I wonder who is a spy. I wonder who I know who's a spy. I've got a few, you know, suspicions. I swear to God, I, I had brunch with this lady the other day. I think she is a spy because she said she worked for the Ministry of Defence. And I said, what do you do? And she goes, I can't tell you. She wouldn't say that. No, she said, I work for the MOD, but I can't tell you anything about what I do. And I went, oh, my God, I, are you M? I interviewed someone from <laughs> who, who worked in the MOD. His name is Nick Pope. And his job was, I, I don't know if it was secret at the time, but he can talk about it now. I don't know. But his job is looking for aliens for the Ministry of Defense, an official thing. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that blew my mind. Yeah. That is a niche, niche job. But, you know, my co-host on Stop the Killing, her 15, I think maybe 15 odd years of her career was in espionage, counter, counter um, terrorism. So she's got 15 years of stories that she can't bloody tell me. Oh, it's killing me. That is annoying. That is annoying. 
Right, let's, so annoying. Let's move on. We've got 10 more minutes. I want to move on to mass shootings because that's another thing that's going to alienate some people listening because people just get very, very emotional because these are the... Polarised. Yeah, the ideologies we... It's not... It's, it's rarely actually the thing at hand. I don't... With abortion, I think it's not, uh, you know, pro-life. It's often not about the actual thing happening, although it is that as well. It's about what side you're on and what it means for your side to be threatened by the other side. And some people are, you know, from Republican areas where they where the, having a gun's important and some people are not. What... What have you learned delving into all of this? Well, I should say that I literally came at it with like a completely no idea on what position I took. My whole idea with Catherine was like, listen, what's going on in America? Why don't you just get rid of the bloody guns? That's how I started the podcast. And when we've gone through the series, she's just kind of educated me on the nuances and things like that. So now I kind of, you know, I was very much like, wow, man, there's no way I would have my kids go to active shooter training in school. That's horrific. Have Catherine explain it to me. I'm like, God, why are my kids not getting active shooter training? Interesting. You know? So... Yeah, it is really interesting. We don't come at it from a political point of view. It's very much, we're just going to give you the facts and it's all based on the research that she's done. So she's pretty much one of the world experts in this. After Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012, she was tasked by the White House um, to create the first ever research into mass shootings. Because weirdly, before that, no one had ever looked at mass shootings as a whole as a proper study because if the shooter's dead or the shooters in jail, it's case closed. So nobody was comparing and working out were those actually um, ways that we could stop them? Were they getting worse or was that just media hype? So she's done, she did the first ever study um, and what we do is we delve into the research all the time. Uh, we also have on the podcast some amazing guests. And one of them that we've got this season is a criminologist, a professor of criminology from the University of Alabama. And he did a study. He's done some fascinating studies. His name is Dr. Adam Lankford. And one of the studies that I just was like, I have to know more, is a study of 171 countries and basically the relationship to gun ownership to gun violence. So it's looking at that question from a broad perspective, is getting rid of the guns actually the way forward? And what does the science tell us? What do the countries that are getting it right look like? What are the countries that are getting it wrong look like? And what's the nuances and the differences? So it's very much just a presentation of the facts so that people can feel that they've got a place that they can actually get information that's true. Because it, like you say, it's a very polarized issue. And if you're only listening to one side of the story, you're only going to get one angle and, and you won't hear the rest of it. It's it's important to a lot of Americans. And I hear them say sometimes, you know, look, it, it, with to, to have guns, I mean, um, uh, look at Ukraine or whatever. Wouldn't it be good in a situation like that for them to be armed? And I understand those because I grew up as well with this get rid of the guns thing, which is a very British thing or a very New Zealandy thing because we don't grow up with guns. On the other hand, I, I've always pointed to or, or thought about the Australian thing because they used to have guns and they had this horrible, horrible attack. And then they banned guns and they never had another one. What was it called? It was Port Arthur, and we've just um, we've got an episode on that coming out this season. But do you know what's interesting about that? As you say that um, you you were brought up thinking, you know, we don't have guns. But the reason that that we don't have guns is just before Port Arthur happened, Dunblane happened not too far before that. So Amer the UK was already going through those changes of putting in stricter gun laws. Um, and when Port Arthur happened, that kind of all kicked on. And so that's why there aren't such accessible, you know, that th we've got gun licenses and things like that in New Zealand as well. But um, yeah, we we present that case of Port Arthur as an example of what happens when you do get rid of the guns, when the government bought back. But, you know, one thing that I have learned is there's so many guns in America now, like so many. There's 120 guns per 100 people. So you've got more than one gun per person now. That's grown so much in the last four years, I think it is, um, from 88, which was already the leading ridiculous stat, still the most gunned up country. Uh, and so to actually buy that back is is a phenomenal amount of money. Phenomenal. So what we talk about on and what Catherine would say is actually the guns is only a part of the problem. There's so much we can do around prevention. And she's got a book called Stop the Killing, which is how we 
came up with the title for the podcast, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. And in it, I think 10 of her chapters, of the 14 chapters, are, are about prevention and how we as a community have ways to stop it getting to the point where there is a person with a gun in their hand. Um, and, and that's the key. There are so many points along the way when a per person is on a pathway to violence that we as a community are the eyes and ears um, that we can actually step up and, and do something about it. And that's what I've been learning because I come to that podcast as a listener just with access to this amazing person who's got all of this amazing knowledge. And I am basically listener number one. So the questions that I'm asking are the same as you know, anyone listening would want to know. I hope that's the idea. <laughs> yeah. So, what is the is it is it a case of just making people a bit a bit better educated as to okay, there's someone in their community who's been acting a bit strangely, and and who you should call in those situations. Yes. Um, what we do on each episode, so we'll take a historical episode. Um, I should say now we've had to do a bonus episode on a Tuesday as well, which is just related to cases as they unfold because there's been so many new cases so it's kind of the tuesday is the place to come to get your information on active shootings and what's going on recently and then on the thursday episode we have uh, a historical case and we'll pick apart that case just to see what went wrong in that um, and after action essentially to see what markers along the way people could have stopped it and prevented it i mean things as simple as um and this is what always surprised me. The very first episode we did was on Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting of 2012. And in it, she quizzed me at the very end when we talk about the killer's um, background. And she went through the killer's background and, and she said, is there anything in there that you think you should have reported if you'd have seen these things? And one of them was that the 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 killer, and we never named the killer on the podcast, by the way, for very good reasons, which if you listen to it, you'll understand. But, um, but glorification. Exactly. And the contagion effect uh, in media. So we don't give them what they want, basically. Uh, so in the in this particular podcast, she had mentioned that the killer had blacked out his windows months before. And she said, well, who would have seen that? Uh, a neighbour would have seen that the killer had their windows blacked out and that was unusual. It was in a family home. And I said, there is no way as a neighbour I would have thought to ever report that. Would you have? No. And even if I, yeah, if I noticed it, I'd just be, uh, it's like I'm intruding. Uh, it's so unlikely that that person's right. going to be a serial killer. So I just leave it. <laughs> right. Exactly. But what I've learned along the way is it's our responsibility. Like there's not enough police out there to be marking these things, but you might just have that one little piece of the puzzle that might not make sense to you, but you might get that kind of like off gut feeling. And that's what I've been learning. You know, we as citizens have to report. But who do you call and say, excuse, excuse, officer, um, the, the, my neighbours have blacked out their windows and then they're going to go, well, <laughs> good, they're probably having a swingers party or something in there. <laughs> well, that'd be great if that was actually the outcome, right? If it was just a swingers party going on. Um, but, you know, in different places, obviously there's FBI tip lines. Um, and actually, you know, there's an FBI international tip line. So even if it's happening in your country, you can you can like let them know. And it will get back to wherever it's supposed to go, apparently. Um, you know, and, and in your country, you need to know where the tip lines are as well. I feel a bit defeatist. I, d I don't know. I felt that way too, Andrew. <laughs> don't, don't worry. I did as well. I honestly yeah. did. But what, you know, that's the broader thing. If you're living next, towards, next door to this person, you probably know what school that kid goes to, right? That's where you can report it to straight away as well, because there should be a threat assessment team in the school. And if your school doesn't have a threat assessment team, that's something you should be making sure that your school has, because that's part of it, you know, is having those layers of protection built into the community. Mm, I still feel like going to alienate loads of people. Defeatist. Well, yeah, but also just make the gun laws stricter. Come on, just... Don't let lunatics. Oh, guns. you're going to alienate people. Well done, yeah. you. Well done, you. I know. I know, but they still they still like the podcast because I think they know I see their side as well. But it's just the stats are so, as you say, I mean, it is so far in terms of there's no other country in the world that has anywhere near that amount of guns and anywhere near that amount of 
school tragedies. So it could be other things. They say guns don't kill people, people kill people. And that is true as well. People with guns kill people. You can kill someone with a knife, but you're going to get caught a lot quicker before you've killed, you know, 20, 30 people. And you cannot do as much damage no. with a knife as you can. I've tried. With a gun. No. Sorry, I shouldn't. <laughs> oh, that's great to know. Glad we're doing like a an internet call then. Oh God, no, I haven't. I haven't um, tried. <laughs> it's one of those jokes I make where I think Disclaimer God, am I going to have to edit that out <laughs> I don't know probably you should be able to joke about anything you can joke about anything I think as long as people know it's a joke um, and I don't I don't I haven't tried to kill people and I'm not making light of horrible um, shootings and things <laughs> I don't know it's, it's a tough one but it does sound like you, you do offer a very uh, nuanced view of it which I think people are going to really like so they should check that out so yeah give give me the names again of the of, of those three we haven't got into the climate ones because that will piss off even more people but give me the names of the, of the even more people <laughs> of the three podcasts we've spoken about you're going to be winning audience <laughs> losing audience winning audience while they listen to this podcast they're going to be switch and flipping uh so the first podcast is conning the con the second podcast is clueless about k-l-o-g-h-l-e-l-e-s-s -S yeah. i can't even spell it that was terrible uh and shall i do that again so you can get a clean edit on that i think it's funnier with you shouting about it afterwards i think that's a better version <laughs> And it will stay in people's heads now, won't it? Leave it will it. stay in their heads better. Exactly. Yeah. They know how to spell the less exactly. bit. It's the clue bit they didn't know. And you got that right. Right. Yeah, yeah. true. Isn't that terrible? Bloody hell. Um, hilarious. Okay, so, and then the final one, I don't have to spell. Stop the yeah. killing. Stop whoop, the whoop. Killing. And then if you want to, if you want to save the world a little bit, go over to Guilty <laughs> Greenie. So there you have it, everyone. You've got four... Four podcasts to look into. Have a look at them. I'll talk about them in the intro and outro as well on, on the audio podcast. Sarah, thanks for coming on the, the podcast. It's been a pleasure having you here. Oh, it's been a joy. A big old joy. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on the show. We actually met at True Crime Con as in convention, not that kind of con that she's been talking about. But that was a couple of months ago, and I felt she had stories I absolutely wanted her to tell on On The Edge. Do look up Conning the Con, Clueless, and Stop the Killing if you want to hear more about those fascinating anecdotes and themes. Sign up on patreon.com slash andrewgold for bonus episodes, ad-free episodes as well, and a sense of community, not community like Sarah's, but this is actual community. People sort of comment and we chat to each other. And keep on leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts and CastBox. Here's one this week from Pink Flamingo in Mexico. It's got a hoe at the end of Flamingo. Uh, five stars. And Andrew, thank you so much for helping distract myself from depression these last few days. For that alone, I will always be grateful. Keep up the good work, Ivan or Ivan. I think it's Ivan. Now, Ivan, or if it's in Mexico, it could be Ivan. Ivan, uh, I hope you're doing all right. I hope you're doing well. I hope this message helps you. Obviously, I don't want to be glib enough to suggest that uh, a message might help with something as serious as depression. But I do sincerely hope that things start to look up for you. And I send uh, my love and, and everything. Uh, thank you so much for commenting. That's all for now, everyone. See you next week when Elgin Strait from the Moonies cult uh, will talk to us about the Shinzo Abe killing. That's the ex-Prime Minister of Japan, uh, as well as the rest of the Moonies cult stuff. And the Coffin Confessor's back on to reveal the secrets of the dead. He's fascinating. Make sure you join me for that one. For both of those next week, they're both fascinating. See you then. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.